Good morning, everyone. Hi, good morning. So about two weeks ago, on Friday, my roommate and I gathered with our neighbors on our little street to celebrate the life of one of our neighbors who passed away. The neighbor across the street from us was a, a older gentleman named Graham. He was 87. When he died, he was not married, he had no children, but the neighbors all just really appreciated and enjoyed him. So we gathered together for dinner. Uh, most of my neighbors are hovering around 80. We had dinner at four, and um, <laughs> true story, I had to leave work early, and I was still full from lunch, but we met at four for dinner, and we told stories about Graham. When I first met Graham, when I, I moved in, Graham came across the street and introduced himself to me. He was, I think, 82 at the time, and he said, my name is Graham, like the cracker. And um, Graham, the thing that you knew about Graham, in fact, a lot of people knew, is Graham, um, he was a bit of a reclusive gentleman. He, as I said, he, he no family uh, that, we, that we knew of, everybody in his immediate family had passed away, his parents and his sister. He didn't really have many friends. He had one friend that we knew about who lived here in town. Uh, Graham, word on the street was that Graham had been in the CIA and, um, and, and so he, and, and it kind of explained a little bit of his reclusiveness. He didn't like it when people would pull into his driveway uh, to turn around, and so he set cinder blocks across his driveway, four cinder blocks, perfect equidistance, and then what he didn't want is he didn't want anyone to run into them at night, so he put reflectors on them, so when you pulled in, you wouldn't hit them, and then I'm told, I never got close enough to check, because I, I didn't, I was pretty sure he had cameras everywhere as well, I was told that he had actually numbered them, so if anyone ever stole them, that he could identify them with the police, and uh, Graham was this sweet, sweet gentleman, he was so kind, he came in when I first moved in, uh, to the neighborhood, he learned that I travel quite a bit and I would leave town and leave my lights on uh, in the front and the back of the house and he was very concerned that somebody would know that I was out of town and so he asked if he could come over and set up timers on my porch lights so that they would go off and on and he spent about three hours putting it together and then he told me how it worked and he said, now I don't think anybody's gonna be outside watching to see that they go off and on at the exact same time every day. I was like, well, Graham, you are probably gonna be doing that. And uh, but So we gathered together uh, two weeks ago Friday with uh, about a dozen of our neighbors to, tell, to honor Graham's life, to tell stories about him and we got he, the one friend that he had had uh, here in town besides our little street had known him for 67 years. They had been in the military together. And that gentleman was able to give us all the stories of Graham's life in the CIA. I mean, really, literally stuff where Graham would go in, Mr. Graham would go in to uh, behind the Berlin Wall with a, a, with a briefcase. He would sit at some cafe or restaurant at a table. Somebody else would come in with the exact same briefcase. They would speak briefly to each other in code, Graham would get up, take the other briefcase, and, and make his way back into uh, Western Germany. And so all these stories are coming in. And, and as we sat, we talked about his generosity. I mean, Graham, he didn't like it when people came up to his front door. But on Halloween, evidently, he would leave a big bucket with very large candy bars and a note for all the kids to take what they wanted. He was we talked about his generosity, we talked about his thoughtfulness, we talked about some of his quirkiness whenever we'd pull in, he would put his arms up like, you know, uh, you know, like touchdown or 
Touchdown Jesus at Notre Dame or something, and, you know, he just would always, and he was just this sweet, sweet, quirky, wonderful gentleman. And these are the things we talked about when we talked about Graham. And I don't know if it was just because of this recent experience that when I read the passage for today, uh, when Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, I thought, what will one day be said of me? One day when my friends are sitting around the table talking about my probably quirkiness and maybe some other characteristics, what will be said of me? And I want to take a look at the passage that, that we have for today. In 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, there are, we're going to read the first four verses together and then I'm going to circle back to the last two verses that are laid out um, as part of the lectionary reading. This is actually the lectionary reading from, from last week, but we'll visit it today. Paul is writing to and about the Thessalonian church, and he says this, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love you have, the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith, in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. Paul says your faith is growing more and more. One, one version says your faith is growing abundantly and your love is increasing. And while I understand that this passage is not about me, I mean, you know, we, we, we read, sometimes we read through Western eyes, we read very individually. While I know this passage is not about me, I can't help but ask, similarly, what will be said of me when my friends are sitting around the table, will my friends be able to say that her love was abundant, her faith was abundant, her love grew more and more, her faith grew more and more over time? And I would, I would submit to all of us our own questions for our own individual lives and then us as a church family, will this be said, could this be said of us, that our love is growing more and more, that our faith is abounding? Two weeks ago, Matt talked about the, the discipleship, really the formation, uh, specifically of children. I can't remember if he's in here. I lost him. There, there he is. Um, you, you talked, Matt, a couple weeks ago about the formation of children and the discipleship of children, how children are formed in the faith, really because the reality is that children and all of us will be formed by something. If we're not intentionally formed in our discipleship toward the Lord. We'll be formed by whatever we, our circumstances are. I, I was reading a great book about discipleship um, a couple years ago, and the, the author started to write, and he, and he wrote about the discipleship, the formation that happens around the dinner table at night, which I had never really thought about. He said, when a family meets together over dinner, there's a formation that happens. You're, you're, you're interacting, you're, you're teaching your children and you know, what it means to, to reflect on their day and share what's going on in their lives and you're sharing this meal together. And he talked about how very often we, we schedule meals around our, our actual schedule versus adapting our schedule around the meal. And he talked about the importance of gathering together as a family for a meal. And I realized how I had been formed after my folks split up, I had lived in kind of two homes, really, between moms and dads. And in one of our homes, we sat around the table together and we shared our day. In our other home, we sat in front of the television and watched TV for dinner. And, and I, I didn't realize until I read that how that had formed me. And so whether we want to or not, we're going to be formed. And I think to Matt's point is how will we form the next generation? And then also how are we being formed? The circumstances of our lives, the, 
Even what Paul says here, perhaps even the trials we endure can form us. How will we be formed? And what is forming me now? I, I, I have to ask myself after a couple decades, uh, more than a couple decades of walking with Jesus, am I constantly repeating the same mistakes, errors, dare I say sins, <laughs> that I have, I have made in the past? And I'm not talking about an upward trajectory. I'm not talking about our discipleship as if we're trying to sell a product, that it has to be an upward tra trajectory. As one of my friends says, our discipleship is more like a garden than a factory, which I just, that's so good. That was so good for me to hear. But I do need to ask, am I, am I repeating some of the same things? And, and if so, how am I being formed? Or is my love increasing? Is my faith getting more abundant, even in the midst of what the things are that form me? And surround me. A pastor that uh, I know Matt has uh, quoted a number of times, a pastor we really like, an author, Rich Viotis. Uh, in fact, Matt, I, it's possible that you have shared this, uh, this quote before, but I loved it so much. It says, he said, the sad irony of our day is that we can be deeply committed to being a Christian, but not deeply formed by Christ. And so when I read that, I think, man, wow, Lord, man, Lord, <laughs> man, um, Lord, <laughs> How might you want to grow me? How might you want to form me? And how might I cooperate with you as you do? So here's Paul writing to a young church that is facing persecutions and trials. In fact, if you go back and read really the genesis of this church, the Thessalonian church in uh, Acts chapter 17, I mean, Paul's there and he's preaching. People are starting to give their lives and say yes to Christ. And then there's all this persecution that comes in. I mean, someone's trying to start a riot. They're, they want to pull, you know, drag Paul out of the city and they can't find him. So they pull some guy named Jason out. I mean, it's just this church was really kind of birthed in trial, birthed in persecution. And he's writing to this young church and his encouragement in verse three there basically is saying, you know, you have these trials, you have this persecution. Let's talk about your faith and love. You have troubles, your growing faith and love is the remedy to those troubles. Faith and love will help you persevere in the midst of these trials. He's not telling them how do you get out of the trials. He's telling them your faith and love can grow in the midst of these trials. He doesn't offer a way out. So I think it's a good time as I'm reading through this, it's a good time for me to ask, what am I facing today? And how are my love and faith growing? My inclinations, friends, my wiring, if anyone's known me for a little bit, I was, um, I was on the path to law. I love a good argument. I'm not going to lie. I really love, I love, I love just, you know, rightness and justice and all the things. My inclination is not, how can I love well today? My inclination is, how can I win this argument? That is just myself in myself. That was like, it would have been, you know, that's, that's probably why I, I went toward the law in my undergrad before the Lord redirected my path. But what am I facing today and how are faith and love growing in my life? And I think if we're going to ask that, we also have to ask how we define faith and love. Because I'm not completely sure that what we in our world mean by faith and love is necessarily what scripture um, is, might define faith and love. I think it's easy for our ears to hear something I'm not sure the ancient writers meant. So faith and love. Often heard, faith is often heard as what do you believe in? And I would submit that it's something much more than that. I think the substance of our faith does include what we believe in, but I don't think it's defined specifically only by what we believe in. 
Yes, our theology matters 100%, but I think even what Paul is saying is that something beyond, do you believe in God? Okay, great, what are you going to do about that? It's more than just the intellectual consent, but perhaps that faith really is an issue of our trust. It's not just what do I believe in, but how do I believe? I can believe God will walk me through a trial, but do I believe that he will? Not just our intellectual consent, but the essence of our faith. I, I have this image in my mind when I think about trust a lot of times. I, I think of a hammock. I don't know if you've ever just laid in a hammock. You realize you, can't, you really can't hold yourself up. You just have to let go. You just have to kind of give into it. I mean, if you lie on a mattress or if you lie on a floor, you can kind of hold yourself up a little bit. Have you ever tried to hold yourself up on a hammock? It's a mess, you know? So every time I think about where is my trust, where is my faith as it's reflected in trust, I imagine the hammock. And the phrase that always comes to me when I think of that is just simply this, a restful reliance. As I let go, as I lay myself in the hammock, there's a restful reliance. I, there's a reliance this thing is going to hold me. And really all I can do is rest into it. Is my trust growing in restful reliance on the Lord? I think we can see this in Jesus' life in a lot of ways. I, I think even in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he's wrestling through what is the greatest trial probably of his life, he's facing betrayal, he's facing a beating, he's facing crucifixion. We, we know that Jesus believed in the Father, but it was his trust in the Father that kept him there. I mean, we know Jesus could have been like, God, I believe in you. Father, I believe in you. But there, was, there had to have been a, a, a reliance, a trust for Jesus to say, and I'll stay here, thy will be done. I'll stay here and drink the cup that you had for me. So while faith, I think, is often described as what we believe, I would submit that it is how we believe. Again, Rich Viotis said uh, this, he said, a deeply formed life is marked by an ever-increasing reliance upon God that produces the character of Christ in us. I, I very much want, as my faith hopefully is growing more abundantly, that I have an ever-increasing reliance on God that will form the character of Christ in me. I think similarly, as we have to look at what we define faith as, I think we have to define love. I think there's been such a morph of what love means. What does it mean in our culture? What does it mean, you know, is if you don't accept everything I am about who I am, then you obviously don't accept me. You obviously don't love me. And I just am not sure that that's a biblical view. You know, I think about with the rich young ruler, Jesus said, I want you to sell everything and come follow me. And the rich young ruler was like, no, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. And the, the word tells us that Jesus looked at him and loved him as he walked away. Now, I think what sometimes people want to do is say that, well, you know, if, if, I, if you love me, then you're going to accept everything, everything about me. And I don't see Jesus saying, okay, come follow me, sell everything, follow me. And the rich young ruler says no. And Jesus is like, okay, let me just meet you where you are. Let me just, I'll, it's okay. I, I'll just give in a little bit. What can you do for me today? because I want you to know I love you. So I think we have to be careful what the definition of love is, just even biblically, can we love people truly? And, and is the expectation, you just, have to, you just have to accept all of me for who I am and everything and all my faults if you really love me. Yeah, it's, I think you'll follow me. It's, we have to be careful with that one on what really love means. Jesus looked at him and loved him, even as he walked away. 
That's a hard, that's a hard thing to, it's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? But Jesus loved him, even in the midst of his walking away. I, I think, um, I have a good friend who told me one time that when she was in high school, so she was old enough to drive, but not old enough um, to be doing much of anything else. She'd had a little bit too much to drink. She said she was leaving her house and her dad was there. She said, and I know my dad loved me very much. She said, but I probably shouldn't have been driving. And he let me go. She said, I know my dad loved me. She said, but I fear that my dad's love for me didn't have the spine that it needed. He just let me go. And I, that's, that's always kind of sat with me. I, I want love to be for real. I don't want my love to be spineless. In comparison, I was driving with an old uh, roommate one time uh, years ago, and um, I will confess to you, I was being very, very critical of, of someone that I worked with that she knew. I was being very critical. Said some things that just were not, not respectful, not honoring. And my friend, very quietly, she got quiet, and she looked at me, and she said these words, you don't want to be like that. And I immediately burst into tears because she was right. I didn't want to be like that. And I felt so completely loved that she would be honest with me that way. That's all she had to say. She knew me so well. You don't want to be like that. I had stumbled over my own arrogance that day. <laughs> I had stumbled in love for somebody else, but I knew I was loved with a biblical love because she looked at me and loved me that way. I said, you don't want to be. You, you want better. You want to live your life better than what you're living right now. You are right. I sure do. So the questions as we think about what faith and love mean is how do we trust and how do we love? Again, Paul is writing to the Thessalonian church here. It says, I mentioned a young congregation. Um, it, the background of this letter, the this, this second uh, epistle to the Thessalonians was to address some issues that they had needed correction in about the return of Christ. Now stick with me for a second here because I'm going to go somewhere. Um, I, so he's talking here, he's trying to address in some of this letter their, their misunderstanding about the return of Christ. And we actually sang something about that today, Kevin, about um, when Christ shall, shall return. Um, so I, I will say this, when I first became a Christian, um, the pastor of the church that I went to did a five-week series on why we would never see the year 2000. And um, so I tend to be a little nervous when people talk a lot about, like, setting things, like, you know, it, it's just, I don't know if I'm just, it's just a reaction, because I remember thinking, do I what do I have to do? Do I, you know, <laughs> give up, call, you know, all the stuff, you know, stop going to school. And so I, and, you know, and then 2000 hit, I was like, okay, we're still here. I was so young. It was literally the first sermon series I ever heard in my Christian life was why we would never see 2000. So I'm, I'm sometimes a little bit I just a little little sensitive to this, but we're going to talk about the end times for one second here. So, but we're actually just going to look at a passage because I, when I was reading this Second Thessalonians passage, I couldn't help but think about some words that Jesus said in Matthew 24. And then when I was studying out, one of the commentators commented on Matthew 24 in the Second Thessalonians passage. I was like, okay, I'm not crazy, but this is the stuff that I I think has stirred me and challenged me is when I read Paul's words and then I thought about the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, starting in verse 9. Jesus is talking about the end times here, and, and he says, you'll be handed over to be persecuted, put to death. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. He said, at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Verse 12, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. 
but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. So here's Jesus offering a warning on the events of the end times, the deception, the wars, the famines, all the things. And he says, many will turn away from the faith. So we know he's talking about believers here. But verse 12 is what always kind of shakes me. He said, the love of most will grow cold. Some, some versions say the love of many. I don't know how much many or most is, but it sounds like a lot. It's not, it does not appear that Jesus is talking about just love toward God alone because of the context of the passage where he's talking about people betraying one another. The love of most will grow cold. And when I read that passage, I thought, you know what, with God's help, I, I'm going to do everything I can not to be in the most. I'm going to do everything I can to make sure my love stays warm, stays hot, stays where, where Jesus wants it to be. I don't want my love to grow cold. I don't know how you all have felt in the last couple years, but I felt it has been ripe for cold love in our world. I, I just think turning on the news, it's been like we got, got everything with the pandemic that was so contentious. We had very painful and public racial issues that so contentious. We've had political stuff that just never seems to end and it's contentious. You know, I think, I think the world around us has been ripe for cold, for our love to grow cold. But how I've been processing with the Lord the last couple years especially is, God, I want more than anything, I don't want my love to grow cold. I want my love to, I want my love, as Paul says, to be continuing to increase. I want my love to increase. This has been, I feel like, a, a test for me. Um, I, just even things that, you know, you might bump into with family or with work, there's a, a challenge I had a couple months ago just in a work situation and it was, it was a bit contentious, um, and it was a bit troublesome. And I remember thinking, I, I want to win this argument, but the Lord at different times would come back and remind me, but, but how are you loving this person that you want to win the argument with? How is your love? Is your love growing cold here? I wish I could say I, I nail this every time, but this is how I'm processing the trials and challenges of my own life. How are you loving? So, so rather than thinking about how can I win this argument, which again is my inclination, my question when the Lord helps me is how can I love this person well? How can I love this person well? Because Paul said when you're in the midst of these trials, persecutions, etc., his question had to do with the love and faith. I think the Lord gives us this example. I think he gives us this model in a moment. Um, actually, Kevin and, and the team, if you guys wouldn't mind coming up and leading us. We're going to wrap it up in a moment. I think the Lord gave us this beautiful example of how to live this out in his own life. If, if you look in the book of John, so much of the life, so much of, of the life of Jesus reflected in the book of John in the first half, but then it's so interesting. Jesus kind of pulls away and he pulls his disciples away. And then, you know, if you have, you know, the, words of Jesus in red in your Bible, you see there's a lot of red between John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. You see Jesus' final actions. You see his impartations to his closest disciples. Um, here, here they are. They are hours or even moments from his arrest, from his crucifixion, from his death, the persecution and trials of Jesus' life here. And you got to figure that if in these last few moments, last few hours of Jesus' life, all this stuff is in red because he's investing into his disciples, you've got to figure this carries weight. I mean, really, the question is, if you only had a few hours left with those you love, what would you do and say? And this is what Jesus did and said 
in the last few hours, facing persecution and facing trial, showing us abundant faith and love on the night he was betrayed, he stripped himself and washed the feet of the ones who would not live up to the values and convictions he taught them and imparted to them over three years. Have you ever felt disappointed in someone for not living up to what you hoped they would? Jesus stripped himself and washed the feet of those who did. On the night he was betrayed, he offered the bread of fellowship to the one he knew had already betrayed him. Have you ever felt betrayed? Jesus offered the bread. On the night he was betrayed, he prayed for one disciple who was one of his closest friends, uh, but he knew who he knew would soon deny him. That's how Jesus showed his love and faith. On the night he was betrayed, he gave a new command. He said, love one another. As I, by this, everyone will know that you belong to me if you love one another. On the night he was betrayed, he comforted with the hope of heaven the ones who would soon run and hide for fear of arrest. It was too much persecution for them, yet he, in love and faith, offered the hope of heaven to them. On the night he was betrayed, he promised his Holy Spirit. On the night he was betrayed, he trusted or relied on the goodness of his father's character and his father's plan, and he offered up his trust with the words, not my will, but yours be done. On the night he was betrayed, he invited his friends and followers to a table and said, every time you do this, remember me. What amazes me is the invitation still stands. The invitation still stands to us today. We are welcome to the Father's table, which is extraordinary. We are welcome to um, come let him grow in us abundant faith and increasing love. And I think part of that happens here as a church family. Part of that happens as we submit our hearts to him at the table. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to wrap up here today. And as we do, um, we're going to form two lines here down the center, two aisles. Um, you are welcome to join us at the Father's table. You can receive the elements as you come up. Someone will speak over you the words, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, and then you can take them back to your seat and receive. Um, I would encourage you, if I, could, if I could say it this way, I would encourage you to offer a prayer to the Father for increasing faith and love before you receive. Um, just, just in a moment of response to God's word, just asking God, if, if God doesn't do it in us, man, I, I, I just know I've walked with God too long. I can't do it in myself. I know that. I've learned that. I've tried it. <laughs> Many of us have. I can't make my own love grow, but I can submit my heart to God and ask him to grow my faith and love. So I'm going to pray the prayer that Paul prayed over the Thessalonians. And as I do, if you would just take that moment to hold your hearts before God and ask him to grow your faith and love, and then when you're ready, you can start coming up here. But I'll, I'll pray the prayer that Paul prayed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good in every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. When you are ready, please join us at the table.